The following is a sermon preached at the First Presbyterian Church of Jackson, Mississippi. Uh, I hope you all uh, have your copies of God's Word or have access to a copy of God's Word. Uh, Turn please to the book of Romans. We continue tonight our January intensive study of Paul's letter to the Romans. Um, If you've been with us last Lord's Day, where we looked at chapters 1 through first half of chapter 3, you remember the main contours of Paul's teaching. Chapter 1, 1 through 17, Paul gave us many of the major themes that he will address in his letter. He told us, do you remember about the gospel's message, its mission, and the manifesto, the, the gospel in summary? Then in chapter 1, beginning in verse 18, all the way through chapter 3, verse 20, that we looked at together Sunday evening past, Paul dealt with three objections to the demand of the gospel that we be saved by faith alone in Christ alone. The first objection, chapter 1, 18 through 32, I did not know, no one ever told me that I needed to believe in Jesus. But Paul says we did know a great deal of the truth of God since it is clearly seen in the things that have been made, so that uh, we are without excuse. And even what we did know, he tells us, we have rejected and suppressed and distorted so that we stand guilty in the sight of God. Not for what we did not know and did not believe, but for what we did know and still did not believe. And then in chapter 2, 1 through 11, the second objection, I'm not as bad as the other guy. You know, graded on a curve, I may be a sinner, but I'm pretty decent. Surely God will accept me. The God we saw has only one standard. He does not grade on a curve. And we all fall short of that standard. The third objection, chapter 2, 12 through 3, 8. I'm religious already, so surely I'm exempt from the need to repent and believe in Jesus. But what use, Paul asks, is the Bible and the worship of God and the ordinances and sacraments and all the outward paraphernalia of religion if your heart remains unchanged in in its fundamental rebellion against God. No, Paul concludes, chapter 3, 9 through 20, no one is righteous, not even one. The whole world is accountable to God. But of course, all of that raises one crucial question. If we are so thoroughly bad so universally guilty, so clearly condemned in our sin, and yet God still declares us righteous, not on the basis of any merit of ours, but solely because we believe the gospel. If that's the way all of this works, how can God still be righteous himself in any meaningful sense at all. After all, isn't it unjust of God to forgive wicked sinners who deserve to be condemned? How can God be both just and the justifier of sinners? That's the question. That's the dilemma that Paul's teaching thus far is raising. And in our passage tonight, 
Paul answers that question and then teases out three implications for us from the wonderful truth that he teaches. So turn in your Bibles, please, to Romans chapter 3, beginning at verse 21. Romans chapter 3 at verse 21. In a moment, we'll read some of the passage. Uh, Before we do, uh, let me give you a little bit of an outline of our approach. Chapter 3, 21 through 26, Paul answers that question that we've just outlined. How can God be both righteous and at the same time declare guilty sinners to be righteous when they're not righteous, they're guilty sinners? How can God be both just and the justifier of one who has faith in Jesus? So he answers that question. And then in chapter 3, 27 through 31, the first two implications of his answer are introduced in verses 27 and 28. We learn the gospel produces humility. And in 29 through 31, the gospel produces unity. And then in chapter 4, 1 through 8, Paul turns to the life of Abraham and expounds the first of those themes, the theme of humility, and shows how the gospel produces humility from Abraham's life. And then he does the same again, chapter 4, 9 through 12, with the theme of unity. Then chapter 4, 13 through 25, the third great implication of the gospel, certainty. And again, he points to the life of Abraham to show us how the gospel generates full assurance and gospel certainty. So the crucial question, how can God be just and the justifier of one who has faith in Jesus? And then three implications of his answer to that question. The gospel produces humility and unity and certainty. How can God be just and the justifier of one who has faith in Jesus? And the implications of his answer to that question, the gospel produces humility and unity and certainty. Okay, so that's where we're going. Um, I hope you haven't eaten too much brisket or had too much ice cream because we have an hour (laughs) Um, to rummage around in Romans together. Um, uh, Someone asked me earlier if there will be a test. Um, Depends on whether you stay awake or not, whether there will be a test. Let me go ahead and pray and then we'll read the passage. Let's pray. Our God and Father, we love you. We love that you speak to us in your word, that you don't leave us to the uh, speculations of our own imagination. You don't leave us to try and piece together answers. You have revealed yourself to us in the Holy Scriptures. And so now we ask you, please, for the ministry of the Holy Spirit to open our understanding. We, we want to know you better. We want to grasp the good news about Jesus more clearly and firmly. We we want to be nourished by it and live in its light and give you praise and glory for it. So would you come please now and by the Holy Spirit minister your own word to our hearts for your great glory in Jesus' name. Amen. Romans chapter 3 at verse 21. This is God's word. But now, the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. 
the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. But what then becomes of our boasting? It is excluded. By what kind of law? By a law of works? No, but by the law of faith. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Or is God the God of Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also. Since God is one who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith, do we then overthrow the law by this faith? By no means. On the contrary, we uphold law. Amen. <clears throat> Praise God for his holy word. Just a portion of the passage we're considering, but we're looking at this part of chapter 3 and all of chapter 4. Now, there are, there are some texts, sometimes some really very short texts, that change everything. Uh, the Gettysburg Address, for example, 272 words, took all of two minutes to deliver, shaped the course of American policy for a century. But arguably, the paragraph with which the portion of Scripture we're considering here tonight opens surpasses every other paragraph. The biblical scholar Leon Morris said that the 134 English words of Romans 3, 21 through 26 may constitute, quote, possibly the most important single paragraph ever written. The most important single paragraph ever written. Now that's worth our time, isn't it? The most important single paragraph ever written. Let's take a look at it together. Romans 3, 21 through 26. You remember from our first address, Lord's Day morning, that Paul, in Romans 1, 16 and 17, provides something of a, a thesis statement that he is unpacking and defending and applying in the body of the letter to the Romans. Do you remember what he said? I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God unto salvation for all who believe, to the Jew first and also to the Greek, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed. From faith for faith, for as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. That is, the, that is the proposition that Paul is setting out in Romans to defend and to prove. And in chapter 3, 21 through 22, he is essentially restating that opening thesis, as if by way of reminder. He has 
engaged in significant argument about our lost sinful condition in chapter 1 through the first half of chapter 3. And now, like a good preacher, he wants to make sure before he goes on in his argument that we remember his basic starting thesis. So he goes back and he essentially repeats himself. But now, he says, the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. That echoes chapter 1, verse 17, doesn't it? The gospel, he says, is the power of God for salvation for everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also for the Greek, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. And now here he is again saying, now the righteousness of God is manifested or revealed apart from the law, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. So you see these two statements, chapter 1, 16 and 17, chapter 3, 21 and 22, they're essentially saying the same thing. They're repeating one another. God's own righteousness has been manifested, revealed in the gospel. But it is a righteousness that does not condemn us, but rather saves us through faith in Jesus Christ. Um, and we can say similarly, just like chapter 3, 21 and 22 repeats 1, 17, uh, 16 and 17, chapter 3, verse 23, the next verse, sort of sums up everything else he said from chapter 118 all the way through chapter 3, verse 20. Chapter 118 through 320 is Paul's diagnosis of our spiritual problem. He's shown us that everyone everywhere is a sinner guilty in the sight of God by inheritance from our first father Adam, by preference and behavior and choice. Everybody is guilty in the sight of God. And Paul sums all of that up in chapter 323. For there is no distinction. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We are inveterate, hopeless, natural-born, habitual, preferential sinners. I am, you are, everyone is. By the way, commentators point out that word translated in uh, uh, chapter 323, to fall short, all have sinned and fall short, of the glory of God means something like to lack, to want, to be destitute of. Paul's really saying all have sinned and lack the glory of God. And that, that I think, puts a slightly different complexion on the problem that Paul has been diagnosing. It's not just that we have simply fallen short of the mark in our behavior. It's that we ourselves now lack what we need. The idea is not that we've failed to reach God's 100% pass mark, though we have, writes Christopher Ashe, but that by exchanging the worship of God for the worship of human people or projects, idols, we lost our glory as godlike creatures. We were meant to shine with the glory of God so that when someone looked at us, they could say, ah, now I see what God is like. We forfeited that privilege we lack that glory, to put it mildly. Sin has horribly tarnished the shining glory of God's image that was stamped upon us in creation. And so now do you see the dilemma. Paul has set it up for us beautifully, hasn't he? The key phrase in this paragraph is 
the righteousness of God. He repeats it over and over in verse 21, again in 22, in 25, and in 26. God is just. He is righteous in all that he does. He always adheres perfectly to the holiness and righteousness that he's declared to be characteristic of his own very nature. But how can he be unless he destroys all of us who fall short, who lack that glory, who live in constant, habitual, preferential disregard for his righteousness, who presume to assert our own moral goodness debased and filthy as though it were an, absolute, a, a, an adequate substitute. We assert our own righteousness. It's filthy rags, and yet we say, our righteousness will do. What an offense to God. To use the language of verse 26, then, how can God be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus? How is faith in Jesus enough to overturn the right, fair verdict of condemnation your sin, my sin, deserves? How, how does this work? How is faith enough to overturn the just condemnation we all deserve? It's actually a question I know many of us, some of us who've been Christians, very fine Christians, for decades still struggle to grasp. How is it possible that God would accept me as righteous only by faith when my sin is so terrible, so damnable, so foul? How can God avoid the charge of fraud, of playing favorites, of winking at sin, of double standards? How is God fair to forgive me? I can't even forgive me. Surely I need to pay. I need to do penance. I need to clean up my act. I need to prove my worth. I need to make amends. How can God be just and justify a sinner like me? Now look at verses 23 to 26. Do you see his answer? All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift. How? What legal mechanism can afford a guilty condemned sinner like me this verdict of righteous in God's courtroom? We are justified by his grace as a gift. Look at what he says. Through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness, to show that he is righteous after all, because in his divine forbearance he passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time that he might be just and the justifier of one who has faith in Jesus. So God shows, he proves that he is righteous after all, he puts the question of being just and right in justifying wicked sinners like you and me beyond all doubts. And he does it, Paul says, by putting forward Jesus Christ. Jesus secures, notice the language in verse 24, he secures redemption for us. God secures it in Jesus Christ. That word redemption comes from the slave market, from buying back a slave, purchasing their freedom, sometimes at great cost. Christ, by his own obedience and death, has purchased our freedom from sin's destroying and condemning power. We have been redeemed. Notice the other word Paul uses in verse 25. God put him forward 
as a propitiation by his blood. The problem of sin, you remember, is not easily taken care of. It can't just be wiped away. It's not, it can't be ignored or dismissed. God never winks at sin or excuses it. Remember in chapter 1, verse 18, Paul even said, The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. God is angry with our sin. His righteousness is, uh, it burns white hot against our unrighteousness. And so, how can we be now declared righteous when we're not righteous, we're guilty? Paul's answer is propitiation. Propitiation, that word means the satisfaction of God's wrath by way of sacrifice. It's the central idea behind all the blood sacrifices of the Old Testament temple. God sets forth Jesus' blood at the cross as the means by which he satisfies the demands of his own broken justice. His wrath burns white hot in its fury against our sin. He is righteous and just to condemn us. And yet in his great love for us, he provides his son who propitiates his wrath, satisfies his justice, pays in full. So there is no longer any demand left. All the demands of divine righteousness are met. And God is satisfied. We sing sometimes, don't we, let us wonder grace and justice join to point to mercy's store when through grace in Christ our trust is. Here's the phrase, justice smiles and asks no more. He who washed us with his blood has secured our way to God. Justice smiles and asks no more. Not because God is like a corrupt police officer, police officer, who can just sort of waive the legal penalty for the people that he likes and just let us off the hook. No, justice smiles and asks no more because justice is satisfied. The penalty has been paid by Jesus Christ in the room instead of sinners. God the Son, sent at the direction of God the Father, bore the wrath I deserve, you deserve at the cross. That is the glory of the gospel. This God did, Paul says, to show his righteousness, to show that he is righteous after all in justifying sinners, that his standards have been upheld, not forsaken or overlooked, but maintained. How? By means of the cross. All that remains to do, all that is required of us, is merely to trust in Jesus. No work, no ill-conceived attempt to clean up ourselves up first. No penance is required. Merely to trust in the one who's already done everything, accomplished everything, paid in full. That's the glory of the gospel. And we might reasonably stop right there and spend the rest of our time, as we will doubtless spend the rest of eternity, simply praising God for the good news. Paid in full. No debt remaining. 
justice satisfied, wrath appeased by the blood of the cross. Praise the Lord. We might stop there and revel in it. But Paul doesn't stop there. Having vindicated God's justice and righteousness, Paul now shows us three implications, three benefits to us that flow from this wonderful good news. Humility, unity, and certainty. Humility, unity, and certainty. We are humbled, we are united, and we are assured. He mentions the first two, humility and unity, in preliminary form in verses 27 through 31 of chapter 3, and then he expounds them in chapter 4, 1 through 12. Humility he mentions first in 327 and 28. Would you look there, please? Chapter 327 and 28. Paul asks his next question. Do you see his question in 327? What becomes of our boasting? He knows our hearts really well, doesn't he? He knows how prone we are to boast in our own good works, to assert our own righteousness, to claim some little shred of goodness of our own before God. But where does this gospel that focuses on the work of Christ as God's propitiation leave us? Where does it leave our religious pride? What becomes of our boasting, Paul asks? It is excluded. By what kind of law? By a law of works? No, but by the law of faith. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from the law. Faith alone, not by works of the law. So remember, honor him, not what my hands have done can save my guilty soul. Not what my toiling flesh has borne can make my spirit whole. Not what I feel or do can give me peace with God. Not all my prayers and sighs and tears can bear my awful load. Thy work alone, O Christ, can ease this weight of sin. Thy blood alone, O Lamb of God, can give me peace within. Thy love to me, O God, not mine, O Lord, to thee, can rid me of this dark unrest and set my spirit free. So boasting is excluded because God does everything we need for free by grace. There's nothing for us to do but trust in him. So we don't, make, we don't get to make any claim. We don't get to come to God and say, look what I did. Because of this, you should accept me. We must come to him only and say, because of what Jesus, your son, has done. And on no other argument should you base your acceptance on me. Jesus is all my argument before the bar of heavenly justice. When I stand before him, I'll say, Jesus paid it all. And in chapter 4, 1 through 8, Paul illustrates his points by appeal to Abraham's example. Do you see how he does that? Was Abraham justified, declared righteous before God on the basis of any work that he performed? Did Abraham have any grounds for boasting in himself 
before God. Verse 2, chapter 4, verse 2. If Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about. But not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Abraham was right with God as a gift, verse 4. It wasn't wages that God owed him. We are, for the most part, affluent, well-heeled, well-educated, socially privileged people here. And so I wonder if it offends you to realize what Paul's really saying about you, what he's really saying about me. He's saying the only way to stand before God and be counted righteous in his sight, not condemned, the only way is to come to him as an absolute charity case. You can't bring a single shred of your own worth into the equation. You know, I try, to, I try really hard to buy uh, good gifts at Christmas time. I, I try to listen to my wife when she tells me things and uh, get what she says she wants. But sometimes she goes ahead and buys what she wants and gives it to me to wrap and put under the tree. <laughs> and look, I'm happy that she does that. I, I don't really want her to have to return all the nearly but not quite what she asked for presents that I bought her because it turns out I wasn't listening all that well after all. But I have to confess there is something a little bit disappointing about giving somebody a gift they picked out and paid for themselves. Don't you agree? A gift that you pay for isn't really a gift. It's just what you're owed. It's what you deserve. It's your due. But listen carefully, if you come to God asking for your due, watch out. Because all you're due, all I'm due, is his wrath and curse forever. But if we embrace the humility the gospel produces, if we see how the work of Christ strips all our boasting away and leaves us with no claim, none, to any righteousness of our own, if we come as we really are to Christ, a total charity case, <clears throat> naked and helpless and unworthy, like the thief on the cross, do you remember him? And ask only for mercy. If we come like that, God delights to clothe us in his saving righteousness and welcome us in. Humility is the great product of the gospel. It robs us of every boast. It brings us to Christ and his work alone and calls us to cast all our confidence not on any of our own deadly doing, but on his. It is done. It is finished. Humility. Then secondly, the gospel produces unity. Look at chapter 3, 29 through 31. Is God the God of Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also, since God is one who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. Do we then overthrow the law by this faith? By no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law. The, the Jews were tempted to boast in their religious works and put their confidence in their religious performance. But the gospel, Paul has been showing us, in shattering all claim to works righteousness, shows us that God is the God, not of the Jews only, but of the Gentiles also. The justification of Jews and Gentiles comes in exactly the same way, by faith in Christ alone. 
In chapter 4, 9 through 12, Paul goes back to the example of Abraham to pick up on this second point about unity. Do you see that in verse 9? Is this blessing then only for the circumcised or also for the uncircumcised? Is God the God of the Jews only or also of the Gentiles? Does God have two plans of salvation, two people, two churches, an A-list and a B-list? Are there grades of belonging to the people of God? Well, Paul points to the simple fact that Abraham was justified by faith before he was circumcised. Circumcision, you remember, was the great mark and the boast of the Jewish people. They claimed that their circumcision was the evidence that they were right with God already. And that none who were not circumcised could ever be right with God. And so if you wanted to be right with God, whatever else you had to do or to believe, you must be circumcised first. That was their perspective. But no, says Paul, Abraham received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. The purpose was to make him the father of all who believe without being circumcised. So that righteousness could be counted to them as well. And to make him the father of the circumcised. Who are not merely circumcised. But who also walk in the footsteps of the faith. That our father Abraham had. Before he was circumcised. Being circumcised or for that matter. We might say being baptized. That's the sign of belonging to the outward community. Of God's covenant people. But circumcision isn't the thing. That actually makes you a child of God. For that, you need saving faith in Jesus Christ. Faith in Christ alone is the only criteria for justification. That means that it's open to anyone, to outsiders and insiders, to people like us and people who are not like us. There's no spiritual aristocracy. There are no tiers or ranks in the kingdom. The ground at the foot of the cross is level, and we all, to, we all come to Christ on the same footing as guilty sinners, and we all receive the same mercy by the same means, the righteousness of Christ by faith alone. If you really get the gospel, if you really get it, it will humble you to the dust. And humbling you, it will unite you with other people in love. You see, these two things, they fit together beautifully, don't they? Humility and unity. There's no unity without humility. Pride separates from everybody that it deems to be less than itself. It puts people in a category and then dismisses them in order to exalt self. But the gospel shreds our pride. We are charity cases, remember, every one of us. That is the great power of the gospel to make us who have every worldly reason to despise and suspect and separate from one another, the gospel makes us one by showing us that we all equally stand condemned and we all alike have received free grace as a gift. And so we have nothing in which to boast. Our need is the same. God's grace is the same. His provision in the gospel is the same. And that makes us one. Whenever you see someone, whenever you see some, in someone an unwillingness to serve another person, 
because they're a bit strange, a bit difficult, a bit awkward, their face doesn't fit. Whenever you see someone refuse to serve another because they're not quite like them, you can be sure that that person, at least in that moment, is not fully grasping the implications of the gospel they say they believe. It hasn't yet penetrated to their heart in the way that it should. They're still boasting, maybe just privately to themselves in their own superiority, grading themselves on a curve. I might be a sinner, but I'm head and shoulders above that person. You need to go linger in the shadow of Calvary a little longer. You need to go look harder at the wounds of your dying Savior and tell me then that you're superior. You do not yet feel the wonder of the gospel or the horror of your sin in the way that you should. The gospel produces humility and it produces unity. It makes us one. It teaches us to be the willing servant of one another. And then thirdly and very quickly, the gospel also produces certainty. Look now at chapter 4, 13 through 25. In 13 through 17, Paul explains that the promise to Abraham was received by grace alone through faith alone and not on the basis of law-keeping. And in verse 16 in particular, he explains why that matters, why it's important. Look at what he says in verse 16. That is why it depends on faith in order, listen to this language, that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring. Not only to the adherent of the law, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham. That word guaranteed strikes the note of certainty, doesn't it? The promise is guaranteed because it depends for its fulfillment on God's free gift of grace, not on Abraham or anyone else's fickle, inconsistent, imperfect law-keeping. If salvation was a matter of our own moral achievements, we could never have any assurance or spiritual confidence. There would be no such thing as certainty in the Christian life. And some of you I know from conversation have been raised in church traditions that have majored on that. You were taught that guilt is the main motivator of obedience. And obedience was the main grounds of your hope for acceptance before God. It was all about how you lived, how faithful you were, how far you lived up to what was expected of you. And the result was you had no assurance at all. You lived your life on a knife edge, wondering if you were going to fall off and fail and disappoint. But that's not the faith of the gospel. And in verses 18 through 21, Paul returns to Abraham's example to show us the difference the faith of the gospel can really make. Notice the certainty and the assurance that marked Abraham. Verse 18, in hope, he believed against hope. Verse 19, he did not weaken in faith. Verses 20 and 21, no unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. The point here is not to say that unless you have such unwavering, strong faith that harbors no doubts like Abraham, you can't be saved. That's not what Paul is saying. The point rather is to prove that the promise of God that Abraham trusted 
is utterly sure. That's where Abraham's certainty and confidence comes from. That's why his faith was unwavering. Because of the God who promised. So that no matter the challenges that confronted him, no matter how difficult the obstacles for God to fulfill his word, including Abraham and Sarah's advanced age, how will they ever have a child? Yet God had promised. Because God had promised, Paul says. Because of the character of the promiser, Abraham's faith did not shake, did not waver. The point is, you can have assurance because God always, always keeps his word. You can have assurance because God always, always keeps his word. And, and actually, remember, we're in a much better position for assurance than Abraham ever was. All of God's promises that dripped with the gospel were promises that would wait centuries for their final fulfillment. And Abraham clung to them and believed them, yet he did so through dark, the dark shadows of uh, not yet fulfilled clarity. Looking for the heir of the promise to come that would wait centuries before he was born, the Lord Jesus Christ. But we, we are not in that position, are we? Nor do we face unanswerable obstacles. How will God overcome Abraham and Sarah's advanced age? And you'll have to perform a miracle. And how will all this work out? All of that stood as obstacles to Abraham's faith. And yet he overcame them. But we are in a far better, far more advantageous position than he. Because we are not looking for a promise yet to be fulfilled. Nor are there any obstacles still to be overcome. We look back to a promise already kept and the greatest of all obstacles already overcome the obstacle of the grave in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So look at verse 23 through 25. Consider your position in contrast to Abraham's position. Paul says the words it was counted to him were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him, who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. Abraham believed God and it was counted to him for righteousness. That's what happens to everyone who believes the gospel. But we are not required to believe a promise that must wait centuries for its fulfillment. Abraham had to look all those long years into the future and trust a Christ who one day would come to fulfill that covenant promise. But we know he's already come. The promise has been kept. Jesus died and rose. He was delivered up for our trespasses. He died for the forgiveness of our sin. He was raised for our justification. God declared his son righteous by his resurrection. And we who believe in his son have that same verdict pronounced over us. And so we look back on a promise already kept. The stone rolled away. Christ risen in victory. The work is complete. <coughs> Salvation is secured. There's no question now about how God is going to keep his word. That's not in any doubt at all. No dim distant fulfillment for which we are still waiting. No. It is finished. Is the anchor of our confidence. It is finished is the anchor of our confidence. 
Jesus paid it all, all to him I owe. Sin had left the crimson stain, he washed it white as snow. The gospel that humbles us and unites us assures us that anyone who rests his or her faith in the person and work of Jesus Christ, in his cross and resurrection, anyone, anyone, anyone who believes in him will be saved. You are righteous in the sight of God, robed in the righteousness of Christ. You are accepted and forgiven and beloved, not because of you, not because of your deeds, neither can your misdeeds, your failures disqualify you from God's saving grace in the gospel. No, you can be sure, you can be sure that God's embrace of you will never weaken, never slacken, that he will never let you go because his embrace of you was not conditioned on you or on anything that you have done. Which means nothing can break the grip of his, his love. You're utterly, eternally, permanently, irrevocably secure because of the free grace of God and the gospel. You can have certainty, assurance. You can have it because God's already kept his word. He's already kept his word. Some of you I know look at your life you look at your remaining sin and you doubt. You doubt your own salvation. How can, I, how can I be saved? How can I even be savable? I mean, look at me. How can he love me? What a wretched mess I am. Let me say this kindly, but boldly if I may. You have no right to your doubts. How dare you doubt your salvation? Because it's not you that you're really doubting in the end, is it? You think, you think it is, but it's not you that you're really doubting. It's not you that you're really questioning. You're questioning the power of Christ. You're questioning the efficacy of his blood. <clears throat> The sufficiency of his cross to do what he came to do. When he said it is finished, what you're saying is except for me. <clears throat> when he's saying I've done it, I've paid it all. You're saying no you haven't. Not in my case. I'm special. <clears throat> Brothers and sisters, you're not special. You're not the only case unique in all history that Jesus' blood cannot make clean. No, when he said it is finished, he meant it for every believing sinner, for every single one who trusts in him, paid in full. There's nothing left to be done but to trust him. Your security is unshakable not because of you yes you're right to look at your sin and shudder you're right to look at it and hate it you're right to grieve over it you're right to be ashamed of it but don't you dare doubt the power of christ to forgive it 
and wash you clean. Trust him. You will be safe forever. Let's pray together. Our God and Father, we bow before you and in these studies we are racing through huge chunks of sometimes dense, closely argued text and we're just skimming across the surface in ways that frankly, at least to me, feel almost sacrilegious. And yet, seeing the whole, the, the bigger picture helps us to understand that your argument with us is unassailable. That you are just. You're just in your judgment of our sin. And you're just when you forgive us our sin because you have poured out your wrath on your son. Please, oh God, then would you forgive us? Please forgive us for allowing our own sin, our own weaknesses and liabilities to loom so very large, to fill our whole horizon that they have obscured and, and seemed to us bigger than your grace, than your gospel, than the work of your son. Help us to, to get back under the shadow of the cross, to, to fill our gaze again with a clearer view of Jesus and what he has done so that we can put our sin in perspective. Yes, it's ugly and awful and to be grieved over and repented of and turned from and fled. Yes, help us to hate it. But oh, please, by your Holy Spirit's work in our heart, Teach us never to doubt your power to cleanse it, to deal with it, to deliver us from it. All of that costs the blood of your son, whom you raised in victory over sin and death and the grave on the third day. And because he reigns as king triumphant, we can have assurance and certainty and confidence give it to us that that our hearts might be flooded anew with gratitude with gratitude teach us please that posture of gratitude that flows from the gospel for jesus sake amen